Our scripture tonight comes from Jonah chapter 3. I'll actually begin reading in chapter 2, verse 10, uh, just to give us a little bit of the context where we are in the story, and then I will read through all of chapter 3. So Jonah 2.10 through 3.10. This is the word of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, we see a powerful picture of the gospel, not only in Jonah, and how he has been a type of Christ throughout this story, but we also see the effects of the gospel as it is proclaimed, even in a lost and dark and enemy place like Nineveh. Pray that as we hear your word tonight, it would inspire us to proclaim this gospel, and that all here tonight would believe it as being truly theirs. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever had a second chance? There are lots of stories of second chances from history. One can think of, for instance, Grover Cleveland. He's the only U.S. president to serve two non-consecutive terms. He was in for four years, got voted out, and then four years later ran again and won a second term. Or a similar situation would be Winston Churchill. He was best known for being the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom during World War II, and he resigned immediately after the war, but then was again made Prime Minister in 1951. He was, in fact, in office when Queen Elizabeth II took the throne, which tells you just how long she was in office. 
And in fact, Churchill was the last person before Queen Elizabeth to receive a state funeral in the UK until just a couple weeks ago with the Queen. But beyond second chances to hold office or to be a historically significant figure, we have probably all had second chances in our own lives where we made a mistake, we failed at something, we did something wrong, and got another chance to make it right. If you're married, you've probably had second and third and fourth and 20,000th chances with your spouse after you have somehow disappointed him or her. Or when you were a child, you may have probably almost certainly did disappoint your parents, and yet they gave you more chances, continued to love you, continued to support you. We are not perfect people. We are all fallen. We are sinful. And thus we often find ourselves in this life needing and getting and using second chances. Tonight, as we return to the book of Jonah, we see Jonah get the second chance of all second chances. Remember that when Jonah started out, back in chapter 1, he was in open and high-handed rebellion against God. He was on his way to apostasy, fleeing all the way to the edge of the world in Spain, not just to get away from his assignment in Nineveh, but to get away from the presence of the Lord. But Jonah has learned through this ordeal, the hard way, that there is no fleeing from the presence of the Lord. The Lord knew where Jonah was and what he was doing, and orchestrated events just the right way to bring about Jonah's repentance and return to the task. God raised up the great storm, prompted the sailors to throw Jonah into the sea. He brought the giant fish to swallow Jonah, and then by his power kept Jonah alive inside that fish for three days. Then God had the fish vomit Jonah out on the dry land, presumably somewhere closer to Nineveh than when he started. And it is then that Jonah gets this second chance of all second chances. Now, it is not as though God is just hoping that Jonah is going to finally do what he was asked. God knows and has determined this outcome from the beginning. He is Lord over Jonah. He is Lord over everything that has happened in this story up to this point. And God has brought Jonah to see things rightly and respond rightly. And he has prepared Nineveh for Jonah's arrival. So we will look at Jonah's second chance today in three points. First, we see Jonah rising in verses 1 through 4. Though he had previously been in a downward spiral, he is now prepared and willing to do the task that God has given him. Second, we will see repenting in verses 5 through 9. Jonah's message in Nineveh is well received and people turn away from their sin. And third and finally, we see God relenting in verse 10 as the people repent God hears them and turns his wrath away. So we have rising, repenting, and relenting. So first we will look at rising in verses 1 through 4. In Jonah 1, Jonah's rebellion and estrangement from God was described not only in the geographical distance, he was going all the way to Tarshish in Spain to escape God, but also in vertical distance. When he was told to go up, to Nineveh, he instead went down to Joppa to board a ship. And then he went down into the hold of the ship 
where he was found asleep when the great storm came. And then finally, he was thrown down into the sea, where he hit his proverbial rock bottom inside of a fish. While God is not contained in space, he is often described, and we often think of him as being up from us. He is in heaven. He is above us. He is over us. So what Jonah has done thus far in this story is a move not only away from Nineveh, where God has called him to go, but a move away from God himself. And yet God intercepted him on the way down. And the fish brought him back to his starting point. We don't know where exactly the fish puts him, but situationally we're back where we started, chapter 1. Now, there is also a sense here in which Jonah reappearing after these three days in the fish is something akin to a resurrection. For all intents and purposes, Jonah was dead. When the sailors threw him off the boat, they thought they were sending Jonah to his death. And as Jonah's psalm last week that we looked at revealed, Jonah thought of himself as dead, crying out from Sheol, the place of the dead, something even akin to hell. Yet after three days, Jonah is essentially back where he started, and alive. As Jonah has throughout this story been something of a type of Christ, by his death from the ship, turning away God's wrath, turning away the storm and certain destruction, to his time in the fish is something of a burial, something of a time among the dead. And then now his emerging from the fish as a picture of resurrection. Jonah had been brought through death back to life. He knows he should not be alive. For his rebellion against God, he deserved death. And the ordeal he went through in the sea should have been the end of him. But God has been merciful. And God renews Jonah's purpose, giving him once again a prophetic commission. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Now Jonah's opinion of Nineveh has not changed. We will find out more about this when we look at chapter 4. But through this hardship and struggle that Jonah has gone through, God has brought him around to doing what he wills. Jonah's view of Nineveh is the same, but his view of God has been changed. It has been righted. Jonah recognizes that God is God and that he has had mercy on Jonah and that Jonah is obligated to serve him. It is a sad testament to our sinful human condition that we often require chastening and rebuke and hardship in order to turn us back to doing God's will. And even then, we often do so reluctantly. We do so with much hesitation. Now, Nineveh hasn't changed in the last three days while Jonah was in the fish. Still the capital of the enemy Assyrian Empire, the opponents of Israel who had made war against them and other things. By human categories, Nineveh would be about the last place that a man of Israel would want to go. But God does not look at these matters according to our human categories. No, he tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach the message that he gives. Now we'll find out some things about that message here in a moment. But for now, we get some information about Nineveh. 
in verse 3. While we don't know where the fish left Jonah, wherever it was, it would have been still a long, perilous journey to Nineveh because Nineveh is not near any ocean. It would mean traveling through the desert, and it would mean traveling across enemy territory. And we read here that Nineveh is an exceedingly great city. It's a big one. It would have been one of the largest cities in the world at the time. So big that it took three days just to walk across it. When I was in seminary, I would go do pulpit supply up at churches in the greater Los Angeles area. And it is the biggest city I've ever seen. Remember the first time I went there, I was on my way to a church in Torrance, which is right about the middle of the L.A. metro. When I first hit the edge of the suburbs of L.A., as with most cities I go to, I thought, okay, I'm in the suburbs, I must be almost there. And then I looked down at my GPS, and I was still 80 miles away. It's just such a huge city, a huge mass of humanity. While Nineveh would not have had as many people given that there was no cars, given that cities were generally smaller. It would have been something akin to that kind of city in ancient times. And this is where Jonah is told to go. Now, another issue when we're dealing with cities is because cities are a collection of large numbers of people, and because people are sinners, cities tend to be collecting points, if you will, for human depravity. This is not to say that cities are necessarily bad, But there is, when you get more people together, you do see more of the effects of sin. You see, often in the cities, crime, violence, all the issues that go with cities. Uh, I would see that when I would go to Los Angeles. And if you travel to any large city, you can sort of see these effects. You can see the consequences of the fall compounded by so many people in one place. In a way, it sort of recalls the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 6, where all the people were told to multiply and fill the earth, but in rebellion to God, they stayed in one place. Not that cities are rebellious, not that they're bad, but it does seem that with cities, there can often be great wickedness abounding in cities, and that is the case in Nineveh, as we will see. Now, When we think about cities and we think about the gospel going to cities, we can look in the church and we've seen in recent decades often this push to plant more churches in cities, to be for the city is a popular phrase. I've heard it in school and lots of other places Um, because cities are centers of culture and influence and people, it is thought, will go from cities to all over the world. But what often ends up happening is that When people go to the cities, it's very easily to be assimilated into the city. You don't go and be salt and light and change the city, but the city changes you. So as Christians, wherever we go, city, country, we are called to faithfulness. And Jonah is going to model faithfulness, even difficult and costly faithfulness, in this huge city. Remember, Nineveh was the capital of an enemy nation. There's a good chance that if he goes there to prophesy against the city as a Hebrew prophet, it's going to end badly for him. He might be arrested. He might be put to death. There's a lot of bad things that could happen. Think not only of a city. Think of like a hostile city. Think of if 
You were to go and proclaim the gospel in the streets of Tehran in Iran or Pyongyang in North Korea, cities where the gospel is illegal, essentially. This would be the kind of situation that Jonah might well be walking into. But Jonah goes. And when he enters the city, he begins to cry out. And what does he say? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is not exactly a seeker-sensitive message. Jonah shows up as this prophet from an enemy nation, and basically his, his big lead line is, you're all going to die. Now, in light of the background we have about Nineveh and the message Jonah is delivering, we might expect that Jonah and his preaching would be poorly received. But we see by God's power and in God's purposes that is not what happens. And this brings us to our second point. After Jonah's rising, we see in verses 5 through 9, Nineveh repenting. Do the Ninevites get angry at Jonah? Do they throw him in jail or try to kill him or torture him or what you might expect a city like this to do? No. Without any apparent delay or hesitation, we read that the people of Nineveh believed God. What happens in Nineveh when Jonah preaches is perhaps the fastest and greatest spiritual revival documented in the whole Bible. That comes not because of Jonah's great eloquence of preaching. The only thing we get from what he preached is that he was pronouncing judgment and condemnation on them. We don't even see, from the words we have recorded here, an offer of repentance held forth to them. And the way they respond indicates they're not really sure if their repentance is going to matter or not. But the people of Nineveh hear the word of God's judgment, and because God's Spirit works such things in the people He chooses, they become instantly aware of their need to be reconciled to God. Now this can help us, and this can inform us as we live in and engage with the world. We are often pressured to mitigate the proclamation of God's wrath, of His anger against sin. Much of the church tries to be seeker-sensitive, tries to lure people in with things that people from the world are going to like, be it music, programs, fellowship, community, and hope that we can lure people in with these things, and then maybe at some point eventually we'll get to preach the hard truths of sin and repentance. The problem is that those who commit to such a philosophy of ministry often never flip the switch and preach those hard truths. So a lot of people are attending churches and seated there comfortably while perhaps never hearing the law that condemns them and the gospel that redeems them and how they ought to live as a result. We can be afraid to call out the world and its sins. The church can retreat and the world descend deeper and deeper into its moral and spiritual chaos. Jonah modeled this well for us back in chapter 1 when he was asleep on the ship while the crew was facing death. But now he models for us the solution. Preach unashamedly and unreservedly what God has commanded to be preached. From Jonah, all we see from when he first shows up to town is this proclamation of sin and condemnation. And yet that is sufficient. 
God uses it to convict and transform the hearts of the Ninevites. Not only do they believe in God, but we see that they fast. They put on sackcloth. They take on a posture of grief, of mourning over what their sin has brought. Now it can be easy at times, because we know that we live under grace, to think lightly of our sin. When we are even caught and confronted in our sins, we might just think, okay, I'll pray for forgiveness and move on. Now it is true that God forgives us when we confess our sins, and we should make a regular practice of confession. That's why we do it here every week in worship, and hopefully we all do it more than that throughout the week. But our repentance should never grow cold. Our sin, though it will always be with us in this life, it should always grieve us. It should always produce a godly sorrow and a desire towards more holy living. Well, in Nineveh, we see this confrontation of sin, and then we see Nineveh responding with fasting and sackcloth and grief. But this isn't just a popular movement. It goes from the least of the Ninevites to the greatest. For we see in verse 6 that the word of Jonah's preaching of judgment comes to the king. And this king, this enemy of Israel, similarly receives the word and repents in sackcloth and ashes. And he commands his subjects to do the same. Even their livestock, like, could you imagine what that would be like? Many of you have livestock and work with them and an order from the king, it says, not only do you fast, not only do you put on sackcloth, but all your animals too. I mean, what a sight that would have been to see. The king decrees that the people should cry mightily to God. He wants them not only to fast and put on sackcloth, these signs of mourning and despair, but he wants them to cry out to God for mercy. Now, this would have to be quite a thing. You see this great city of 120,000 people in three days' walk, all of them together at one time, humbling themselves, not only in their words, but visibly humbling themselves before the Lord. I've never seen anything like this. I doubt any of us have. The king also decrees that his people should turn from their evil and violence. We see here not only the personal conversion and repentance of the king, but his desire as king for his people to engage in civic righteousness. Now much ink is spilled and much controversy ensues in our day over the relationship between church and state, the people of God and the world. Many Christians... Uh, those who profess to be Christians, they would argue things like, well, faith is a private matter and should not engage the public sphere. And we should not expect that God's word should inform the government in any way. An argument is often made, we don't live in a theocracy. Well, Assyria and Nineveh was not a theocracy either. Israel was the theocracy. So here we have the king of a non-theocratic state demanding civic righteousness from his people grounded in God's word, particularly grounded in God's moral law. Turn away from evil, turn away from violence. Turn away from doing the things that kindle the wrath of God. And we often hear about and can be discouraged by 
the evil rulers that we often have in this fallen, sinful world. Leaders are not immune to sin. But here, in the king of Nineveh, we see something that ought to encourage us. Now this king, at least up to this point, he had been an enemy of God's people. We have rulers in our world, rulers in our nation, and in other nations that make themselves to be enemies of God and his word and his people. But we see from this text that God is even sovereign over the kings who work evil against him. And if he so wills, he can even reach them with his redeeming grace. This is why we are to pray for our leaders, good, bad, and otherwise. Not only that they would govern us well, govern us for the good of Christ's church and his purposes in the world, but also that they would kiss the Son, that they would bow and worship and believe their King of kings and Lord of lords. It may not happen. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and it is for him to work on his elect and in his timing. But know that if God can convert the king of Nineveh, he can probably convert and save whatever rulers we have or others have in the world that oppose and terrorize God's people. And so we should hope and pray toward that end. And when we have the opportunity to speak the truth to anyone, from the least to the greatest, including our civic rulers, we ought to do so. Who knows if it will be the means by which God convicts them unto repentance and unto righteousness in their rule. Now what we also see in the king's decree is that repentance is accompanied by obedience. It is not merely enough to be grieved by sin, to be sorry for sin. There is a turning away from sin and a turning toward newness of life. For the Ninevites, they not only saw their sin and how wicked and how evil it was before God, they turned away from it. They were to put away their violence and bloodshed that had incurred God's wrath. In verse 9, the king of Nineveh puts a rhetorical question on the end of his address. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? At this point, as I mentioned before, they don't know for sure if this is going to happen. They do not know if God will turn away from this calamity. But they are believing God, they are fasting and praying and repenting and crying out to God in hopes that he will. This brings us to our third and final point. After Jonah's rising and Nineveh's repenting, we see God relenting in verse 10. We see that God sees their works. Namely, he sees their repentance and humbling themselves before God. And because of this, God relents. He turns away from the disaster that he had promised. Now, this can raise some questions in our minds. We read here that God sees the works. Does that mean that the Ninevites were saved by their works? No, it doesn't. No one is saved by works. Because no one is able to perfectly keep God's law. But what these works of the Ninevites show is that they now believe in God and his word. Belief in God's word will produce works that are in accord with God's word. To put it in terms of the Heidelberg Catechism, there is guilt for sin, 
There is God's grace, and then from that proceeds obedience and gratitude. Because God has delivered His people by grace, it is evidenced in how they live. It is evidenced in our works. And God sees these works, and they are pleasing to Him. Although our works cannot merit or earn anything from God because they are never perfect, in Christ our works are washed. They are made pleasing and praising to God. And so God sees the Ninevites' works as evidences of changed hearts, and so he relents from his judgment. Now we also learn elsewhere in Scripture that this repentance from Nineveh, while very real and very significant, is short-lived. You can read the book of the later minor prophet Nahum, and he will write a prophecy against Nineveh. We find that by the time of Nahum, they have regressed back into their sin and violence. Nahum, he would criticize the Ninevites for plotting evil, for cruelty and plundering in war, for prostitution, for divination. While God may work for a time in cities and families and peoples and nations, apostasy and rebellion do come, and for Nineveh, their destruction will ultimately be sealed. Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire would eventually fall to the Babylonians and then again to the Persians. God's wrath would ultimately befall them. But not this day. Not on the day Jonah preached to them. That day was the day of salvation. It can be easy for those of us who are God's people, particularly who come from a legacy of God's people, to become cold and complacent to forget the depths from which we have been delivered. This happens to Nineveh. In fact, even next time we'll see this again with Jonah. After everything that has happened, after everything that God has brought him through and delivered him from and done through him, Jonah will once again be rebellious against God. But we will leave that for next time. So as it was with Nineveh, And with Jonah, there remains here today an opportunity for salvation. The word of God has been proclaimed to you. And God calls all people to repent and believe in this gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Like Jonah, we have gone wayward from our God and his will. Like Nineveh, we have done violence and bloodshed. Christ's blood was shed to pay the penalty, to turn away the wrath of God that was due for our sins. Jesus suffered and died a criminal's death, though he himself was without sin. He had done nothing to deserve it. And just as Jonah came on the third day from the sea, Christ emerged on the third day from the tomb alive. Through Christ, life and salvation are offered to all who would repent and believe in Him. For those who are in Christ today, it can be easy to become cold and complacent in our faith and in our lives. We can make sin and repentance light things, ritualistic things that don't even prick our hearts anymore. We must remember that sin, all sin, is worthy of God's wrath and destruction, both in this life and the life to come. So may we all be grieved of our sin, 
May we all be crying out to God for His forgiveness and for the grace of the Holy Spirit by which we might more and more put our sin to death. And finally, what we see tonight in Jonah is the power of the proclamation of God's Word. In one of the most unlikely of places, among the most unlikely of people, we see Jonah go and preach what ought to be an unpopular message, and we see God work mightily. What it took, the means God used, was just simply Jonah, finally, after everything that happens, being obedient and being faithful. From this, we learn that if God is calling us to take the gospel to people we know, to places we could go, we ought to be obedient, but also we can know that even if the situation seems dire, even if fruit seems unlikely, God can use it for his will and for his glory and for the salvation of his people if he so wills. And that ought to give us hope and give us comfort as we take the gospel to a lost and dying world. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in Jonah, we see a picture of your son, Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, who conquered death, who conquered our sins, and through him we have forgiveness of our sins. We pray that as we live in this world where we often see violence and bloodshed and even to a certain extent participate in it, I pray that we would always be a repenting people, but that we would also be faithful to bring the gospel of repentance and of life to the people who so desperately need to hear it. And we pray that even as we go this week, we would be faithful towards that end. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.